You guys have a seat. My name is Kevin, one of the pastors here at Journey. Super thrilled to be here in front of y'all. And so as we continue on with our series in Acts, that gave me the hard passage. No, not really. I'm super excited about today. And so one thing that it's, it's amazing when you talk about the Holy Spirit, how divisive it can be, and how half the room wants you to say more, or maybe your experience is that you grew up in a setting where that was a huge identity for you. Or maybe if you are, grew up in a more traditional church, you had the Trinity, you had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. You just leave out the Holy Spirit, like it's just nowhere to be found. And so this morning as we talk about Acts 13, as we see the church move past being stationary, to being sent out, it's fueled by the Holy Spirit. And so today, I really want today to be a message of not only a unifying message, but a message that would bring about the understanding of what the Spirit is and the role that he has. It's interesting to me when we say the terms like baptized in the Spirit, the New Testament, or full of the Spirit, or filled with the Spirit, a lot of us are like, Calm down, calm down, Kevin. And then other of us are, are, are on the other end of the spectrum, that regardless of where we're at, in the gifts of the Spirit, we're gonna talk about the Holy Spirit filling us. And so I wanna separate the two this morning, and this actually will be a continuation in a few weeks uh, when we're able to discern the Spirit and we'll be able to get to some of the more practical things. But what you see here in Acts 13 is where the church went past being stationary and getting all their ducks in a row to a place where they were sent out in their first missionary journey. Interesting enough, Paul is not even listed here first. And it's not even even Paul. They've got to still identify with him as the guy named Saul that's also known as Paul. In other words, he had had this unbelievable conversion by the Holy Spirit. That God had showed up in his life. And yet, here he is, still in the back. They don't trust him. He hasn't been given all the authority. They think he's a little bit flaky. Why? Because he had spent his whole life up until this point persecuting Christians and bringing harm to the name and the gospel of Jesus. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look and see exactly how God came in the, in the form of the Holy Spirit and how he changes us and how it's the fuel to our lives. And there's nothing about the Holy Spirit that should make us uncomfortable. The fact of the matter is, he is part of the Godhead. He is truth. And so let's just jump back into that passage. I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read it for us. And let's just try to be encouraged this morning as a church, as we come around the notion that the Holy Spirit is important and it's evident evidence in our lives is essential to living out the Christian life. You can even say this, is that the Christian life is hard. But more than that, you, it's actually past that. You would say that the Christian life is impossible. In other words, you are going to get to a place where you are very frustrated, constantly trying to act like this and, and minister this way and it's exhausting. The fact is, we're not supposed to do this alone. 
The, the role of the Holy Spirit is to empower us and to bring about unity when we do so. So it brings us strength, it brings us compassion. Let's read this morning. I'm, so, I'm gonna pick up in verse four. It says, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salmas, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as a helper. They traveled throughout the whole island when they came to Patmos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The, pro, the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of, the, of God. But Elias, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them, and they tried to turn the proconsul from faith. Then Saul who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked right at Myas and he said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord was against you and you are going to be blind for a time and not able to see the, the light of the sun. And at that point, we see that that actually came to fruition. And that proconsul there, that government official believed. So what exactly is going on here when we talk about this? Because what we're gonna see is, is that up until this point, they always introduced Saul as the guy that's named, yeah, his name's Saul, but then he became Paul. And then after this moment, it's Paul. So when they see the evidence of God working in their lives, when they see the evidence as they say, as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, everything changes. So to understand the role of the Holy Spirit, I think we need to just take um, a little bit of a detour and look at, I'm gonna say, call these five snapshots of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look and see that the Holy Spirit is not something that just showed up in Acts chapter two like we talked about a few weeks ago. It has been evident throughout the whole Bible. It has been one of those things that had a very specific purpose and yet it got distorted. Let's, let's just jump back into the first, what I'm gonna call snapshot. It begins in a negative situation. Back in Genesis one, what does it say? It says the spirit of God hovered above the waters. So everything was, was, had darkness and was, was without full form or it was void. And there was nothing scarier really to a Hebrew than the water at night. It's completely untamable. And see, the spirit comes and gives order. It gives structure. It gives meaning. And then in Genesis 2... We continue that story where the story then comes alive because what you see is, is this, is that we get this story about how God created man. And he said that he formed man out of the dirt and then he breathed into him and brought about his life. The word breath and wind and spirit all really are the same idea. It's the same word. 
It's God's presence that is moving plus our dirt. We don't have anything that's really of value. In other words, God is what breathed into us and made us who we are. He gave us structure. He gave us order. You see, he's the one really that that is the author of all things. And in Genesis 2, God walks with man. So you have man that is 100% just Dirt, just something that's common, it's worthless. But God that brings that into existence, he brings value. But the irony is in Genesis 3, then what happens? All of that is really messed up. And the same idea in Genesis 2 before, you get the first introduction of who this God really is, is that he was what was the intimate animated presence of God. In other words, he wasn't distant, but his spirit came and dwelled and brought about man. And he brought about value. And there was a friendship and a closeness there. It was like nothing we've ever seen because we've never been a part of life pre-fall. And then Genesis 3, all of that is broken. What is the first thing that God says to Adam? Or one of the things he says to Adam, he says, he says you're gonna die and to the dust you will return. In other words, because of this broken, fractured relationship, the spirit now is not going to be a part of your life in the same way. And to the dust you will, will return. In other words, the thing that made you, you is gone. And so then... We're stuck with the very idea that we're going to have to live this life in the Old Testament without the Holy Spirit. So God then, let's just go to the second snapshot and you get this picture of God working and him coming back to the very nature that he is going to have to make a way. And he does that through the law. But what's interesting is the law really is God's holiness written on paper. In other words, if you're going to live, I'm gonna be among you, you're gonna have to act a certain way. In Deuteronomy, it says that all that is written, we will do. The the Israelites were so excited. And they said, we're gonna do anything you say that you need us to do. And then how did that work out? That didn't work out very well. It's one of those things that they had the best intentions, but it never really came to fruition. Why is that? Because... The law was distant. It wasn't close. It was rules and regulations. And yes, it was supposed to point to something greater, and we know that, but at the time, it was so that God could dwell among his people. And there he was in the tabernacle, and he does his presence, and he manifested that there. But once again, it still lacked intimacy. See, it was mysterious, it was provisional, but it was not personal. The spirit was dwelling, but it had a very specific goal. It's more like Google Maps. It just was informational. It told them where to go. We get this, this beautiful picture when they're wandering in the, well, in the wilderness where you have a cloud by day and fire by night. God's presence was there. Then God also met, his spirit met with leaders. We see that through Moses and we see that through the kings. 
but it wasn't personal. It wasn't to the place where he originally intended it. Let's go to the third snapshot. Y'all, y'all, y'all track one because I know this is a lot. And I know I had, I'm an Old Testament guy and the people that are taking our equipping class know that. This is my passion. But if you don't make this connection, it's very hard to see exactly the role of the Holy Spirit. That God's Spirit has been with us from the beginning. So after many, many decades and years of God's people that have completely turned their backs on God, God is, is not active and present in, in the temple at that point. And he speaks through the prophets. And he talks about a time that's coming. Jeremiah 31, 31, it says this. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will, it will not be like a covenant I made with my ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So there was this utterance of something that was gonna happen. You get the vision of Ezekiel 37 of the, the dry bones, right? It said the spirit of the Lord was the one that put those bones back together and breathed in it to new life. The spirit had a purpose. And yet it wasn't intimate. Ezekiel 10 then, because of the God's being there in the temple and them being completely disobedient, God left the temple. And so when he left the temple, there really was a complete silence for hundreds and hundreds of years. Next snapshot. So when Jesus came back, when Jesus was born, and when he actually started his public ministry, the first thing that he does, he opens up to Isaiah. Look what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Same verse. The animated personal presence of God is back. And he is standing in front of you. What was silent for over 500 years, all of a sudden had been reactivated. And this person named Jesus was living the law out in a way that they've never seen. And living a life that they've never seen. So God is among them in the person of Jesus. And he is there. Does it make a little bit more sense than the last week of Jesus' life whenever he walks into the temple? And look what he does. For the first time, it's actually recorded when he walks up into that part of the temple, what are they doing? They're selling stuff. They'd made it a marketplace. And he, he came and turned over all of those tables. He freaks out. Why? Because for hundreds of years, God's presence had been active. And when he came back, they're doing the same thing. There was a better plan. There was a greater purpose of the spirit. See, then the last week of Jesus' life, we see in John 14, he says, you know him but you know him for he lives with you 
and will be in you. So Jesus promises that not only the Holy Spirit would come, in John 14, 15, and 16, he talks about this, but he talks about it even more intimately, the fact that the Spirit was going to be greater than him. So the, the Spirit was going to be unleashed in his people to do his purposes. So we see from that verse that all believers have the Holy Spirit. That is evident. We also see that, you know, later in, in what Paul writes is that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So if it's in us and we understand that, why is it that we think that we have to flag him down, go and find him? I do know this though, there's been some very specific times that I've felt the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, that I've been on mission trips, I've been ministering to people, that I would say that there was a place that God had 100% control of me. And then there's other times that I've tried to fabricate that. And that ain't go so well either. And so what do we do with this person? The Holy Spirit. We learned also that in John 14 and 16 that he is our guide. It says when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He also says that I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. So this idea that there is this personal presence of God. I love the fact that we have this screen on the back of the wall back here because it's supposed to be called a confidence monitor. Supposed to do some of the words, we're supposed to know the words, we don't sometimes. It's one of those things that we can look back there and know what's going on. And in the same way that you see and try to understand the Holy Spirit, I believe that in the same way that, that God, by design, wants to come and dwell in our lives, and that He wants to come alive. The fifth snapshot. The day of Pentecost comes and that all the believers were filled there. And the first thing that the Spirit did now that this animated, active presence of God shows up, what does he want to do? In other words, he almost had to prioritize. First thing was get the name of who Jesus was out, spread the gospel. So people start speaking of other different languages and they take those languages back to their native lands. And they hear the gospel and it spreads. I've seen things like this when you go into a third remote part of the world. It's, this, it's interesting how God's presence is active in a way that isn't here. It's almost like he has to come and prioritize what is the most important thing at that time. But then he fills all the believers and things are never the same. The church begins. And somehow, thousands of years later, that same spirit that worked and navigated his purpose is still alive today. And there's nothing that we can do to really change that. In other words, when his spirit is active, his name comes alive. 
So to understand, then if the, really the Spirit is active in our lives, what do we do? How do we have more of the Spirit? That's really the wrong thing to say. And this is my own personal conviction here because I believe that Scripture gives us a good litmus test of what to do with the Spirit. In Galatians, it says, it says God had sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is our answer. The th- first thing you gotta realize is that our position of sonship is evident here. So there is sonship. What does that mean? That we are part of this new family, this, this regal family. And it's just almost like you have someone that doesn't belong. So this has been put on me. How am I supposed to act? In other words, if I am part of God in his family, how am I supposed to then live? The position of a sonship has been given to me. And that word that's really written here to, to the Greeks here of being sons, really, it really means the person that gets the inheritance and in that day and age, it was the first son. So that's what's going on here. So it totally can translate. It's not just guys, it's obviously guys and girls. All right, so let's keep going. So this position of sonship, then we have to see that there is, we have to understand and identify the power to live in this new kingdom. What do I mean by that? If I have this inside of me, why do I still struggle with addiction? Why do I still struggle with sin? The Holy Spirit is the one that's supposed to come and be our advocate. He's the one that's supposed to come fill in the gaps because we have no business to be at the seat of the table and to be a part of a family like God, for we're broken. And here we can live in this new kingdom and we can understand and navigate what this life looks like. Now, I want to tell you two different people. For the sake of time, I want to compress a little bit of this. But first one is Paul had this radical transformation of God's presence, changing him, totally valid. Another person would be Peter. If you follow him, what does he do? He vacillates back and forth. He cannot figure it out. He denied Jesus. He made mistake after mistake after mistake, but yet when the Holy Spirit came, it gave him the power to preach to people and thousands were saved. You see here what's going on? That this new kingdom, we've got to learn to live in this because maybe you're just like, I don't know how to change. In other words, if God's presence is a part of me, how do I change? Maybe it was a radical transformation or maybe it's something that just happens day by day by day and then you'd say in a year later, you'd say, God has completely changed me in this area. He's given me a new heart and a new mind. It's interesting that we all experience God's presence in a different way. It's like he knows us best. Let's keep going. Ephesians 5 says this, it says, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking 
one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. God wants us to invade our lives, but this is the crazy thing about this. We cannot replicate what the Spirit's going to do. Let me explain that real quick. I don't know if you've heard a really gross sermon like this growing up, like where you heard somebody say, you need to love people more. Totally true. Or you need to be more kind. The reality is we can't do that. The spirit inside of us is gonna have to do all the work. Just like we saw in the Old Testament, how the law failed. If it's up to us, God is gonna have to be, that does all of the work. Now that the the spirit is intimate, it's animated in our lives, he's gonna have to do all the work. So really all we can do is ask this very question, question, how do people change? Daniel said it best this week when we were talking through this, how does, how do, how do people change? I believe that they don't try to clean themselves up, but they make room. They have some intentionality in their own lives where they can say, God, I want you to come to life. As we bear fruit, interesting enough, it's not your fruit. It's the Spirit's fruit. You're just the one that bears it. You don't have possession over it. That God is gonna bring about that in your life. It's a very interesting thing that, that God has really brought to life in the last few weeks for me. The fact that we cannot do it, but the Holy Spirit can. So we've, we, we, we have this power to live, but really we just need to know what does the new practice gotta look like? What does this practice gotta look like in our own lives? In other words, if, if the Holy Spirit is going to do something The Holy Spirit wants to rule, reign, and work his power in your life. We have to carve out and do some intentional things to be able to allow him to achieve what he wants in us. That is what's gonna work. That is what, if not, we're gonna be frustrated. And we're gonna find ourselves in that old place again. So taking some of the characteristics, I'm just gonna put these out here. From Acts chapter 13, what are some of the characteristics of somebody that looks like they're full of the Spirit? In other words, what did they, they do? This is just me seeing here. The first one is availability. In other words, they allowed God to have free reign, not only about my schedule, my preferences, my convictions, maybe, maybe things I don't really like. Because they, they, they actually, the first three verses, we're going to read it in just a second, but one of the most beautiful things is that they're all there, the church in Antioch is praying, and they're asking God. Barnabas just got back. He'd just been out sharing the name of Jesus, right? And so what happens is this, through the power of the Spirit, they sent him back out. They, they called him, they identified him, they sent him and Paul to others. Now, why do I say it like that? It'd be very easy to be like, hey, I just got back, I need mental health day, or hey, I need, I need to be able to, to come in and, and, and let somebody else do that. But as God showed up, the availability allowed him to do God's purposes. So this is what I'm gonna say. I know we've gone over in time. Y'all just stay with me, we're almost done. His availability. 
in us. Carve out room, space, preference. Next thing you see, just characteristics, the boldness, the fact that Paul, we're skeptical of. And yet, what did he do? He spoke with authority. He told this guy what he thought of him in the most holy way. There was a new boldness. There was a new courage. Third thing is this, is an unwavering attitude, heartfelt devotion. The last verse, they actually passed what we read here. They experienced persecution and yet it says they were all filled with the spirit and full of joy. So as they were being persecuted and as they had had a hard time, their attitude came alive. The last thing is this, that there is evidence of the fruit of the spirit. There is evidence of the fruit of the spirit and that is God's fruit. That is the spirit's fruit. There are some things that suppress the Holy Spirit. Paul then goes on later, as, as we can tell, tell here, he's growing, he's new to all of this. He says in Ephesians 4, he says that, you know, he says bitterness, rage, anger, slander, every form of malice. If you're, is your life full of that? Then maybe we need to carve out more time with Jesus. Maybe we should have a time whenever we're praying and asking God to come to come dwell in our lives, to come empower us in a new way. And lastly, for the church, it's interesting that the first three verses, what do they do? They prayed and fasted, they identified and they sent out. And it says the Holy Spirit commanded that. This morning, I want you to see that I wanna be a church as we pray and worship Say worship, I left that one out. Worship, prayed, fast, and then we're sent out. As we close here tonight, this morning, I want to tell you this right here. I really, we're going to get to this in two weeks whenever we talk about the second part of this message, the more practical stuff. But today I want you to see this, is that the active presence of God wants to be in your life, wants to, wants to control your life. Not a scary thing. Days I live it out to the T and then other days I struggle. You can ask my family, you can ask my kids. This one thing I do know is that God wants to come and fill us anew. He wants to make us and, and, and actually fulfill the purposes that he has. I'm a big science guy, okay? Don't, don't label me a nerd. But whenever you talk about the new James Webb telescope and all the pictures that you see from that. What is so different about that telescope? In other words, we have, we've had telescopes. What's the big deal? If you see the one thing that's different, it's just like the Hubble telescope. One essential thing that makes it different from the rest. And it's this. All of the things on the Earth's atmosphere cloud the telescopes that we have. All of the noise. So what did they have to do? They had to be very purposeful to go and place that telescope in the atmosphere apart from the earth. In the same way, if we would just position ourselves and lean into the fact that we have to carve out 
a life that's full of God. Maybe that means for some of us, for the first time, we start actually spending time with God every day from the distractions, from the noise, so that we could hear from God. Once again, he is gonna do the work. It's not a check mark. It's so that he can come alive and that he can fill us anew. Just one picture that we've got from the telescope. Do we have that? Okay, never mind, that's my fault. It was too big to send in an email. It's interesting to me of all the vast pictures that we have that are coming back from this new telescope. And we could see things that we've never been able to see. Why? Because of the surroundings of that telescope. It's apart from the earth. It doesn't have all the cross-contamination. It doesn't have all the noise. Maybe in the same way this morning, as we ask God, to walk us through what a spirit-filled life looks like, we do this one thing. We carve out a life that wants to know who God is. If you've never read the Bible, start in the book of John, it's great. If you don't know when to do it, if you're not a morning person, don't do it in the morning. Find a, time, find a time during the day that you would find that you're your best and that you could just spend time not only praying to God, reading his word, but then allowing him to come and do all the work because what he does is he comes as he's already in you and he fills us anew for his purposes. Let's pray.